and this is Charlottesville Tomorrow. Charlottesville Tomorrow is a nonprofit organization engaging the public on critical quality of life issues so we make informed choices for our community's future. Visit us on the web at seavilletomorrow.org. On November 7, 2017, voters in the Rio Magisterial District go to the polls to elect their representative to the Albemarle County School Board. This recording is Julia Trent's October 12, 2017 interview with Katrina Carlson. Carlson is being challenged by Mary McIntyre in the open seat contest. Ms. Carlson, thank you for participating in this interview with Charlottesville Tomorrow. The complete audio recording and written transcript for this interview will be available online. Information from this interview will be used in the compilation of the nonpartisan voter guide being produced by Charlottesville Tomorrow. Charlottesville Tomorrow does not endorse any candidates, and our goal is to provide information to the public so they can make an informed vote on issues primarily related to land use, transportation, public education, and community, community design. As you are aware, the first two questions you will be asked have been provided in advance. For the others, you have been provided only the topic in advance. All school board candidates will be asked the same questions. We ask that you keep these questions confidential until all candidates have been interviewed. Each candidate will be, will be provided an opportunity to review the excerpt selected for the voter guide before its publication. Are you ready to start? Yep. All right, perfect. Question number one. Please describe your past experience that qualifies you to be on the Albemarle County School Board. Yep. So I think anybody that is willing to work hard and put children first is qualified to be on the school board. Um, beyond that, I think I bring a few extra qualifications. I was a full-time math teacher. I also went to UVA Law where I focused on child advocacy, which means I was a CASA volunteer. I interned at the Child Protection Unit, and I spent my whole third year as part of the Child Advocacy Clinic, which allowed me to work with um, children who were being denied educational opportunities. I also have the experience of being a mother. I have two wonderful boys at home. My oldest is going to be starting school next year, and his brother is right behind him. So you could say that I have the uh, next eternity of 6 a.m. wake-up calls, but also investment in our local public schools. I've been raising my boys in Charlottesville, and in Albemarle County, actually, in the Rio District. And I think having the experience of being from the community and being a mother is a really important one to bring to the school board. Okay, number two. What is your top priority for action by the school board during the next four years? So the top priority for me has always been improving educational outcomes and opportunities for our students. It's one of the reasons I decided to run. We have a changing demographic in our in my district, in particular the Rio District. Over half the students who are entering our urban ring elementary schools are low income, and that number is expected to grow dramatically. I, um, both of my parents dropped out of high school and I grew up very low income and I know how important it is to make sure that demographics don't become destiny. And so I feel like the top action we need to be taking is making sure that all of our students are not only graduating, but graduating with clear paths to either career, educational, and personal, not either, career, educational, or personal success. Question number three. 
What are your priorities for the Charlottesville-Elmoral Technical Education Center, and should K-Tech build a new facility at Piedmont Virginia Community College? So I imagine you know this is a really hard question because I've read the article that Charlottesville Tomorrow put out um, about all the different options and how all the different players feel. Is it all right if I tilt this up just because I feel like I'm... Yeah, it doesn't actually have to be super close to you. Okay, so I don't have to hunch over as I'm talking. <laughs> So, yeah, this is a difficult issue. So my priorities for Charlottesville Albemarle Technical are increasing enrollment and ideally increasing not necessarily the prestige, but just the attitude that more people should be exploring options at K-Tech. I had the experience, so when I was part of the Child Advocacy Clinic at UVA Law, we sent a lot of kids to K-Tech kids that were struggling and we saw it as an option a really strong community partnership that we could send kids here and get them back involved in school um, and giving them options for after school the problem with k-tech is i feel like too often it is seen as that it's seen as a recourse for for kids that are not doing well and that's really not what it should be there are really valuable trades and careers that are being offered at at k-tech that need to be offered to all of our students so that they can explore them. In terms of moving it to Piedmont, I think there's a lot, I think there are things to be gained from moving in there. I really could not, with a clear conscience, say I know one way or another what to do with that. I would have to look at the budget. I know they just put a subcommittee meet uh, together, which will be reporting in March, and I would love to see what they come up with. I mean, it's going to require five boards approving it. It's going to be expensive. I just have no idea what that process would look like. If moving it to PVCC would make expand the options and make enrollment go up and give our students better access and make it so that more of them were interested in doing looking into vocational work, then it would be great. But I just don't have enough information. I don't think anyone has enough information at this point to make a decision on that. All right, question number four. Why do we have persistent achievement or opportunity gaps? How do we ensure student success is no longer predictable by student race or any other cultural, economic, or social factor? That's a good question. That's why uh, I joined Teach for America after I graduated from Yale. And one of the reasons was because of issues I had around the achievement gap. It was really personal to me. I'm a person of color. I uh, come from a low-income background. I don't like the fact that students... Students that grew up like me, look like me, don't tend to have the same outcomes. I have done a lot of research into it. And what I think is happening here in our town, there was a recent article in The Atlantic which mentioned how, it called out Charlottesville in particular, um, and it mentioned, though, how these persistent achievement gaps tend to surround college towns. I know that one existed at Yale. I want to say it was more extreme than the one we had because while I was going there, there was a very clear divide between kind of the university town and then the outside. And I, my personal experience after having, especially after having knocked on, I've knocked on over a thousand doors at this point, is I think it's just an issue of advocacy. So we have a lot of people in our, every parent, every parent has the right to advocate as much as they can for their children. That's their right. And the problem with university towns, you have a lot of parents who are invested in education um, and who know how important it is, and they advocate very thoroughly on behalf of their children, and it leaves behind swaths of the population that maybe don't have that same um, power. And I'm talking so long that I'm having to look at my question and say, am I answering this? (laughs) 
How do we ensure student success is no longer predictable by student race or any other cultural, economic, or social factor? What I would like to see is less segregation of our school systems along economic and uh, racial lines. I think the more inclusive we can be, the better. I also think the more we can speak out about what's happening and just know that it's something that we need to confront. We have wonderful schools. We really do. We have great options. And it's very easy to focus on that to the exclusion of other things that we do need to work on. So you guys are nodding no matter what I say. So this is (laughs) question number five. How should the school division ensure student success in the world of work and college beyond academics? Yeah, so this is something I've been thinking about. Short answer, I think we need to be focused on careers instead of college. College can lead to careers, but the ultimate goal should always be career. And I wish I could take credit for that entirely on my own, but I had a great meeting with uh, Linda Seaman, who has been very involved in local politics and knows the scene. And she was just talking to me about how, oh, I wish I could remember her exact story, but it was... You know, instead of going to career fairs, instead of having middle schoolers and high schoolers discuss careers, we're taking them to college trips, college tours. It's just picking out your college is the most important thing. And I thought back to my experience teaching. So I was a seventh grade math teacher, and we were so college-centric. You know, we had the pennants up all around our classroom. We got to wear college shirts one day a week. And I'm thinking back, I don't know if I really ever had a conversation with them where I talked about what would you like to do after college? It was just you need to graduate college. And I know that that's not the right, that's not necessarily the right focus. And I also know that college isn't for everyone. Now, I'm going to, I've been talking to so many people that I'm basically getting stats from people at their doors, and I'm like, I need to fact check this because I have no idea if this is right. But I did knock on a door, and it sounds right to me, and I bet it will sound right to you, that 50% of students who start at uh, four-year institutes are leave after the first year, within the first year, within or after the first year, but sometimes like they only make it a year. And I'm like, that aligns with what my experience is. Out of, I have three brothers, all three of them dropped out. I was the only one that graduated. And so I think if we push college to the exclusion of any focus on the end goal, we're doing a disservice to people. So let me look at the question one more time and make sure I actually answered <laughs> To ensure student success, just focus on careers. Um, Make our students lifelong learners who can learn on their own and let them explore their passions so that they know what they're doing. I mean, that's the point of school. All right, question number six. Name both a revenue item and an expense item in the school budget that you're concerned about and tell us why. So this one kind of threw me for a loop just because I've been pretty focused on the budget, but I guess I haven't really been looking at the revenue sides of things. I mean... I guess the revenue item I'm concerned about is getting more revenue in. Uh, I think we need to fund our schools to the best of our ability. There are a lot of things that need to be paid for. Um, What I would like to see happening in terms of revenue, so I guess I can say I don't like that the majority of the revenue comes from, I don't like the percentage that comes from property tax. I think we need to do more economic development. The more we rely on property taxes to improve our revenue, the higher, the harder it is to afford houses. I know that our teachers are struggling with affording houses. See, now that you got me started, I'm like having things pop in my head. The bond referendum. <laughs> I think I'm the only candidate who, the person I'm running against moved here last year. Julian, great 
great kid, but I don't think he was voting age last year. Um, so I had a vote on the bond referendum, and the stuff that was on it was needed, but... You know, it's boosting property taxes every time you pass one, and it's putting something before the voters that they could technically, we could have voted no on it. And then what what happens? Those are things we have to be able to afford. And so then you either have to go against what the voters say. It's just a really big risk to fund your schools through bond referendums. Um, And I don't think we should be relying on that. And we have so many capital expense items coming in that... We have overcrowding. We have infrastructure issues that I think it's very problematic to um, to rely on bond referendums. And so that will tie right into the expense concern that I have with that bond referendum. I remember reading the literature around it, and the way that it was posed to me, the way that I read it, was that we were going to be expanding Woodbrook in order to take into account a growing population. I'm like, okay, that's good. We need to get in front of it. Redistricting was not on the horizon at the time, as I, as I could tell. And then as soon as it passed, all of a sudden it was, it was out there, okay, well, who are we going to be moving into the Woodbrook space? I'm like, this is not what I thought was happening. And I think if they had made it more transparent, the plans that they had for Woodbrook, there would have been less support for that bond referendum. Um, and so now, because they're making that expansion, my neighborhood is up for redistricting. It's been up for redistricting three times in the past five years. Um, and so that expense, and also, you got me on a soapbox here. <laughs> they are, at Woodbrook, they're doing multi-age classrooms, and they're doing an open classroom pod design, which it was not, it said that we were going to be building 16 classrooms in the bond referendum, and now it's an, a combination of, it's changed, and I just, that's the problem with funding things through bond referendums. Revenue and expense I have issues with. <laughs> you are going to have to do some, uh, some condensing of these answers. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. Question number seven. What would you change about teacher compensation and performance measurements if elected? Yeah, so I think we need to boost teacher compensation. We had 300 teachers write in letters uh, last year about the need to get to get more compensation. I know that based on those letters, we hired a consultant who did a great job and told us that we are actually pretty competitive, but we might be comparing ourselves to the wrong target market. And so I think it's worth exploring whether we need to be doing a different target market. Market. I was not particularly pleased with their plan in terms of it changing, the target market changing every year. I thought that would be a confusing metric to base ourselves off of, but they're looking at it again, and I think at the next school board meeting they'll be, is it the next one or the not the one tomorrow? Jeez, there's one tomorrow. The, the one after that, they'll be going over it. So, yeah, I think our teachers, I think the point of teacher compensation is so that we can retain and recruit the best teachers possible. I think we're doing a pretty good job at that. Albemarle County is, um, I think, in our local region where teachers want to go in comparison to surrounding counties. It's a good place to work. I think we should be proud of that. I also think we should always prioritize teachers and their satisfaction. There are also other ways that we can promote teacher satisfaction, and it doesn't always have to be through compensation. It can be through giving them the support and tools that they need to do their job. I know when I was a teacher, it was it was difficult to manage the expectations that I had and feel like I can maintain a family life. I didn't have my boys at that point. Um, when I first started teaching, I didn't have my boys, and I remember it was just all-encompassing of my time. And so 
that's something that you can also do to boost teacher retention and and make them happy other than compensation. Performance measurements, I'm assuming, teacher compensation. What would you change about teacher compensation performance? Uh, I don't think teachers' evaluations should depend entirely on SOL testing. We have different populations. that I'm not a big fan of SOL testing to begin with. I do believe in assessments. I think they can be a very valuable tool in terms of making sure your students are progressing. But I also think they... They can be problematic. I'm laughing at myself because I'm like, how am I talking about SOLs when the topic is teacher compensation? But if you said that other interviews lasted 30 minutes to an hour, I imagine that this has happened to other people. (laughs) (laughs) So with SOLs, I'll just say the story that my brother... um, my brother struggled with SOLs. He had a reading disability, and he is a smart kid. In fact, so all of my brothers are in the military now. He He's smart. He's motivated. He's a great kid. But reading is the block to every single test on the SOL. You can't do well in the math section. You can't do well in the science section. You can't do well on anything if you can't do well in the reading. And for him, what that set up was basically starting in third grade, a lifetime uh, not a career, not a lifetime, what a school career, a frustration and getting it reinforced constantly that you're a problem. His teachers thought he was a problem. You need extra help. You need extra work. You're not, it's just, it's bad. And so much so that recently I remember we were talking, he said something, oh, well, you're this, you're the smart one. This is what you do. You're the smart one. I'm like, that's just a bad mentality to get out of school. And so With that in mind, drawing this back to the question, I do not think teachers should have to look at students as test numbers. And I feel like they're encouraged to do that when their personal evaluation and performance measurement is directly tied to SOL scores. All right. I hope I tied that together well. (laughs) Question number eight. What would you like to see change about the way the school board and the superintendent do business, both at its meetings and outside the public eye? Yeah, so this is a great question. I do have some issues with this. What would you like to see change? I think we need more transparency. That would be the answer. (laughs) I think that there's a very, I know that there's a perception out there that the school board is operating behind a veil, making the decisions it wants to make, and then sort of putting on a show in terms of the the board meetings, the public board meetings. And I think that's problematic in terms of building trust with the community. Whether or not that's the case, I don't know. I'm not behind the veil. But I know that's what people think, and that's, that's a problem in and of itself. The superintendent was recently uh, changed. She retired, and her, her successor was ap- appointed the same day. And that's clearly problematic because there should have been some kind of public search. I've, I've molded over. I think Matt Haas is a wonderful guy. I should say that. I do think he's a wonderful guy. I met with him very early on when I was deciding to run. I actually, right after the announcement was made, happened to sit next to him at the AACP meeting. I'm sure he was not happy about that. <laughs> now you have a whole dinner next to a candidate. Um, and I've heard really good things about him. So I've been, I've been thinking about it and I'm just wondering. So perhaps... But see, here's the thing. None of it's made public, so I'm just left here to kind of guess what were they thinking. Uh, maybe they were thinking that no matter what, Matt Haas is going to get this job. It's their power to decide who the next superintendent is. Maybe they knew it was going to be him no matter what came in, and so they were just saying, let's skip the process and just go with the person we know that we're going to hire. 
I don't know. That's the problem. None of us knows. None of us knows what was going on. I will say that um, the Virginia Freedom of Information Act establishes a strong preference for openness in government affairs. And uh, there's another part of the Virginia Code that says that, quote, the affairs of government are not intended to be conducted in an atmosphere of secrecy. So I do think if I were to be elected, I would just really make sure and work to be as open and as transparent as possible. Oh, and I will add on one little part. I would love to see meetings be made more accessible. I do not think we should move them around, but I just, I don't think it's even clear on the website that you can attend meetings. I've talked to people who say, oh, you're allowed to attend those? I'm like, yeah, you are. You, you can. Um, I also talk to parents that have legitimate concerns, and I say, you should go to the meeting and make public comment. I'll say that out there to anyone who is listening. Go to the meeting and make public comment. It's really helpful. And let your opinions be heard. I think it's great. And I wish that it was more clear to people that they could do that. Question number nine. If elected, what will you do to help our community move forward in the aftermath of this past summer's violent demonstrations? And how will you seek to best represent and effectively serve our economically and racially diverse communities? My platform has been the same since the day I announced, which was months before August 12th. I have always known that race relations are an issue in our community. I live them. My family is, I say my family is originally from Scottsville. The reason I say they're originally from Scottsville is because my dad was given up for adoption because he was mixed race. Um, And his family eventually moved out of Charlottesville because they didn't feel like Charlottesville afforded them any opportunities. So I would just like to point out, I know that a lot of it is, is centered around August 12th and, and how we need to work given this recent thing, but I just feel like it's worth noting. It's, it's not recent. It's, it's been going on for a long time. And the answer is we need to, I'm glad I'm not, oh my gosh, cut that. I'm not glad it's happening. I'm glad that there's a lot of people that are speaking about it now. I think that's important. And I think the best way to represent and serve that community is to encourage candidates of color to run, <laughs> to make sure we're talking and listening to the entire community, and to provide those populations advocacy. I, I mentioned at the beginning that I think one of the issues we have is just uh, imbalance in the terms of advocacy that different populations have. So I think it's really important that anybody who's elected makes it part of their goal to advocate for all segments of the population, and that includes low-income and diverse uh, populations. So mm, that's my answer. All right, question number 10. Mm-hmm. What are your priorities for the school division's future facility needs? I think the answer you're probably going to get from a lot of people is the high school I hear that at a lot of doors, is that we have overcrowding at our high schools and they're just curious what's going to be happening next. We're reaching a point at Albemarle High School where we either are going to keep getting so big that we get into kind of a different category of school or we build a new high school. I think with that, we need to do a lot. The community needs to take a lot of things into account, one of which is... I don't want to further segregate our populations along racial and social lines. And if we build a new high school up 29 where the land is, we're in essence going to concentrate the urban ring students um, at Albemarle High School. And we have another, basically another Western up 29. 
and I think that's problematic in the long run. So we either have to be creative with how we do districting if we make that decision. So my priority would just be serving the needs of our high school students and getting ahead of growth in a way that is not further dividing our community. All right, question number 11. Yeah. What are your views on the role of technology in education, and what issues related to technology should the board be responsible for addressing? Technology and education. I can tell you my story. I got an iPad. I was, this was when iPads first were, I don't know, invented. And I was a math teacher, and I thought it was the best thing since sliced bread. I was like, oh, wow, I can really differentiate now because I can give this kid an iPad, and he can he can work on this, and that will allow me to get these two working on that. And it was really cool to have that iPad. That being said, as time went on, and then especially with my own kids, I don't think technology is necessarily the end-all, be-all in terms of boosting student achievement. I think sometimes we can rely on it, just like I was really excited when I got that iPad and I thought this was going to be fantastic. I think sometimes we can we over-rely on it. We just think as long as we have really neat technology, as long as a student is using technology, somehow they're, they're getting more achievement out of it or they're going to have great, better outcomes. I think we should use technology in terms of exposing our kids to what they're going to be using in the real world. So if they don't have access to a computer, that's obviously problematic because you have to use computers in jobs and in the modern world. So I would say my view on the role of technology is that it's not the end-all, be-all. The issues related to technology that the board should be responsible for addressing are access and equity. So whether it's broadband internet or making sure that all of our students at least have access to what they need and what they'll be exposed to in the real world. But I don't think we need to go crazy in terms of getting them all of the, the latest and greatest. I just updated my phone. I mean, I feel like I'm carrying a book around with me because <laughs> I had the little one before, and I'm like, wow, I can see so much. I can I can play Candy Crush and see that. <laughs> All righty. Katrina Carlson, thank you for participating in this interview with Charlottesville tomorrow. Thank you.